Last month, I uh, got a new vehicle, and so I've been learning all about it. And one of the things that I love about it, but I'm finding a little challenging, are the safety features in this vehicle. Um, it's amazing what they've done to make vehicles both safer to drive and to make vehicles more involved in the driving process themselves. And uh, so this vehicle will alert me anytime I do something it doesn't like. I've learned my car has actually become my backseat driver. <laughs> and it will beep at me if I get too close to another car. And it will beep at me if I start to drift out of a lane. And it will beep at me if I'm in stop and go traffic and the car in front of me leaves and I'm the clown sitting there still as everybody behind me is, is honking at me. It will, it will beep at me uh, for lots of different things. And um, it actually has this feature where it, it will keep me in my lane. It, it, it's almost like bumpers on a bowling lane. It will not let you drift out of your lane. And I was trying to demonstrate this for my daughters recently on the highway, of course, being very careful about it. But I was just like, girls, look at this. I can take my hands off, and it will just kind of guide me back and forth. And then all of a sudden, the car made a new beep that I had never heard before. <laughs> and it said something like this, you should pull over and get some rest. Like, <laughs> with a little, little coffee cup icon, like, pull over and, and get some coffee. And I was like, wow, this car, you know, I thought I was done with backseat drivers, but now I got a car. I could be alone and I have a backseat driver with me all the time. And nobody who drives likes a backseat driver or a frontseat driver, right? No one, nobody likes that because nobody likes being told how to drive. And it really flows out of the fact that nobody likes being told how to live. We don't like being told anything, really, if we're honest. And as we get to the middle of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, Paul's going to make a shift like he does in all of his letters where he's going to go from the first two chapters where he was expounding upon the glorious riches of Christ that we have in the gospel to now he actually, in the light of the gospel, is going to start telling us how we should live. And we're not going to like it all the time. So these next few weeks, just bear with me. Because Paul has some very pointed things to say about the way in which we should live our lives. But it's always in the light of the gospel. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading to you from the ESV. Paul says, finally, my brothers. And I, I think this is funny. One of the commentaries pointed out that Paul here is he's, he's only halfway through his book and he uses the word finally. Which means he's a preacher, right? He's saying in conclusion, but then he's still got half of a sermon to preach. You know, when preachers say finally, it means nothing. And so Paul here says, finally, or in conclusion, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This rejoice in the Lord is the theme of the entire book. And Paul says, I'm going to repeat this over and over and over to you. It doesn't bother me to do it because it's good for you to know. Verse 2, all of a sudden he makes this shift. He goes, it says, look out. Be on guard for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Some of you are like, see, this is why I don't read the Bible, because of verses like this. What does this even mean? We'll get back to it. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself, Paul, talking about himself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now Paul kind of begins to share his resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, 
I was so zealous, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul is giving us his resume here. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I have now counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or keeping the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith or on the faithfulness of Jesus, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, there's a lot, right? There's a lot in there. There's a lot for us to navigate this morning. We've got about 20 minutes to do this. But listen, there's three phrases I want you to grab hold of this morning that I think are going to help us make sense of this passage. The first phrase is the ledger of life, the ledger of life. The second is the courtroom of heaven. And then the last one is the worth or the surpassing worth of Christ. The ledger of life, the courtroom of heaven, the worth of Christ. Let's talk first about the ledger of life. You know, every November, our country gets tense. Every November, our country divides, and there's discussions and Facebook posts and arguments and, and homes turn against each other and friends turn against each other and neighbors turn against each other. And there's all this angst in November. We're a country divided because there's this big debate every November. Should you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? <laughs> And the answer is, according to God's word, no. <laughs> it's not in God's word. It's not in God's word. But I have, a, I, have a strong I have a strong stance on this. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. So for me, I'm like, you got to let it shine. You got to give it its day. Respect the bird. Give Thanksgiving its day. But no, I, I, I can see it in some of your eyes. You've been listening to Christmas music. I can smell Hallmark Christmas movies on some of you when you walked in this morning. And I love Thanksgiving. Now, let me just make my case, and I'll be done with it. I love Thanksgiving because it's about three of my favorite things in the world, family, food, and football, right? And it's relaxing, and there's not a lot of pressure, and there's very little hype, and Thanksgiving's not super commercialized. Go find Thanksgiving shirts and songs and movies. You can't find them. It's... But Christmas, now we love, don't get me wrong, we love Christmas because we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But Christmas in its commercialized form, I don't love as much as Thanksgiving. And there's the hype and the pressure and the gifts and the buying. And at the center of sort of the worldwide Christmas story is this man, Santa. And he's kind of, you think about him, he's a little creepy. He watches you when you sleep. <laughs> and he makes this list about everything you do, right? It's the, it's, the, it's the naughty and nice list, and you want to be on the nice list and not on the naughty list. And, and Santa has this list. We could call it a ledger, where he keeps track of the good things you've done and the bad things that you've done. Now, a ledger is a, a document that tracks data. Usually, ledgers are used for financial purposes, right? On one side, you have income, and on the other side, you have expense, the gains and the losses. And Paul, in this passage, is talking about gain 
and laws. And what he's talking about, I'm going to call it the ledger of life. That when we look at our lives, we look at things that we consider to be gain, worth our time, worth our attention, worth our effort, valuable, things we want other people to know about us, and then we consider some things lost, things that we don't value or appreciate. And Paul begins to go back in his life in this passage and talk about all the things that he used to consider gain. And the first list of things that he used to consider gain would fall under the category of pedigree. Pedigree, things that were true about him because of his birth and his nationality and his ethnicity and his upbringing and his talents and his skills. And did you notice he begins to list them off? And the first thing he says is, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is kind of a weird flex nowadays. But what Paul is basically saying is, I did it right from the beginning, or really it was done for me correctly, the way that Jewish kids were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. It was a religious thing. He says, I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Then he says, I belong to Israel, the chosen people of God. But not just that, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, this really special tribe. And even more than that, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And when he said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, what he most likely meant is that he was still connected culturally and through his language to Israel, as opposed to many of the Jewish people at this point, that because of the diaspora had been scattered all over, and had lost connections with their culture and their language. And so Paul here is saying, my pedigree is top notch. And all of us, listen, when you, when you talk about pedigree, I want you to notice what Paul does. He draws this big circle, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Then he draws a smaller circle, I am an Israelite. Then he draws a smaller circle, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he draws the smallest circle possible, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And it gives us a little glimpse into the human heart when we think about our gains. It's never enough just to have some pedigree. We have to have more pedigree than others. And we don't, it's not good enough just to get inside one circle. Once we're in that circle, we gotta get inside a smaller circle and then the smallest circle. And we do this, right? Think about when you make a sports team. You don't just say, I'm on the team. If, if you're a star, you wouldn't just say, oh yes, I'm on the team. You'd say, I'm on the team, big circle. I'm a starter, smaller circle. I'm a star, smallest circle. I work for this place, big circle. I'm a partner at this place, smaller. I'm in line to become the next CEO, smallest. I have these friends, but not just these friends. I have this really tight group of friends, but then I have this friend, and this is what gives me gain in life. So Paul talks about pedigree, and then he goes on to talk about performance. Paul says, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest religious sect of Judaism at this time. They followed every rule, not just the rules that were in the Old Testament. They created their own rules, 600-plus rules, and they followed them all of the time. Paul was a Pharisee. Secondly, Paul said, I was zealous to the point of persecuting the church. Paul, before he wrote these letters, his name was Saul, and he was an enemy of the church, and he persecuted the church. In fact, according to the book of Acts, Paul would drag Christians out of their homes and imprison them for their faith in Jesus, even executing or seeing, overseeing their executions. The first martyr for the Christian faith, the first man or woman to be killed because of their faith in Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, was a man named Stephen. And we see this, I think it's Acts chapter 6, we read about Stephen, and at Stephen's execution, when he is stoned, which meant he was on the ground getting crushed with big stones until he died, there was a man there overseeing the execution, and this was the man, Paul, then known as Saul. He's saying, this is how zealous I was. I actually had Christians killed 
for their faith in Jesus. And then he says, when it came to the law, I was blameless. I fouled it all. So we look at Paul's ledger of life, and on this side of gain is pedigree and performance. And we might read this and go, "What? this has nothing to do with me. We don't go around bragging about circumcision. We don't go around bragging about being a Hebrew of Hebrews. We don't go around bragging about executing Christians. But we do all have something on the gain side of the ledger of life. There is something that you consider to be your pedigree, a talent you have, a gift you have. It could be your ethnicity. It could be your upbringing. It could be uh, who you know and who knows you. And we also all have things that fit into the category of performance, the things that we're able to do, our accomplishments, our achievements, our relationships. And when your life runs this way like Paul's did, when pedigree and performance are on that side of the ledger of gain, here's, here's how you'll end up living. See if you can see yourself in any of these descriptions. You will hold so tightly to everything in that gain column. You will hold it near and dear with all your strength, and you will not let it go, even when other people say, it's bad for you, you're hurting yourself, it's not good for you, it's destroying you, you will hold to it. You will lash out at anything or anyone that threatens your gain or questions your gain. You cannot rejoice when other people gain beyond you in the same way that you want to. You ask others to affirm what you consider gain, and you surround yourself with people who will affirm that, and then you demonize people who will not. You live with unreal pressure to perform, and ultimately, here's what happens, is you lose yourself in the pursuit of pedigree and performance because who you actually become is all that you're able to be or do. Jesus talks about it this way in Matthew 16. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then look at verse 26. Jesus is now using the language of gain, profit, loss. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In other words, if your side of the gain says the whole world, but your side of the ledger of your life on the law side says your soul, what have you actually gained? And in, in the Greek, this word soul is psyche, where we get our word psychiatry and psychology from. And what Jesus is actually saying here is that if you try to chase the whole world, and even if you get it, what you'll lose in the process is yourself, your sense of self. You will become like whatever you love most, and you lose yourself in your pursuit of gain. And then Paul gives us an example, actually. It was that weird verse, verse 2. He's talking about Jewish leaders who are telling non-Jewish believers, new Christians, Gentile believers, that they have to, in order to be a Christian, it's not enough just to trust in Jesus. They need to also be Jewish. They have to follow all of their customary dietary laws. No eating bacon. You got to get circumcised. You, you know, can't do X, Y, and Z. And they're, they're telling these people these are things that you have to do in order to be saved. And Paul has incredibly strong words for them. Look what he says. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, that is about the most insulting thing you could have said to a Jewish person because the Jewish people actually called Gentiles dogs. At this time in society, dogs were not adored like they are now. You guys got dogs, right? I got a dog. You probably adore yours. I don't really adore mine, but we got one. And so, but dogs are kind of cherished, and people buy calendars with dogs on them and put their dogs on their shirts and get tattoos. But 2,000 years ago, dogs were mangy little scrawny street animals. And they called Gentiles dogs because whenever you saw a dog in the street, it was eating garbage. It would eat anything. 
And that's how the Jewish people viewed the Gentiles because they had no dietary laws. Look at you guys eat pork and you eat shellfish and you eat all this stuff that we don't eat and your dogs. And yet Paul calls the Jewish leaders dogs. He's saying the very thing that you hate, you're becoming. Then he says to the law keepers, the guys who say I keep all the rules, he calls them evildoers. And then this last one is especially interesting. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And in the Greek, there's a wordplay here between circumcision and self-mutilation. They're similar sounding words. And what Paul is saying here is that circumcision, which was something given to the Jewish people in the Old Testament by God as an outward sign of being consecrated, set apart, the cutting of the flesh, the cutting away so that they would be different from other people that was given to them. But now on this side of the cross, it's not our physical bodies that need to be circumcised. It's our hearts that need to be circumcised, that there'd be a cutting away of the things that don't belong to God so that we belong to God. But what was happening is, is they were making circumcision an obstacle to the gospel. And here's what Paul is saying. You who are circumcised, you're actually mutilating your flesh. What he's saying is that your devotion, your level of devotion is actually becoming your destruction because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're trying to build up a gain column of circumcision and rule following and dietary laws. But that's not what the ledger of life is for. And Paul recognizes this used to be true. I used to count all these things gain, but now I count them as laws. Once Paul encountered Jesus, the ledger of his life radically changed. And the first thing Paul did is he took everything that used to be on this side and he put it on this side. I want you to notice that Paul, when he had an encounter with Jesus, the ledger of his life changed, and now Jesus Christ was the only thing on this side. It's not that it was pedigree, performance, and Jesus. Jesus is not someone that we add to all of the things that we need and desire and love most. Jesus instead replaces or displaces pedigree and performance so that Jesus Christ is the gain in life and everything else is loss. Christ gain, everything else lost. And we'll talk more in just a little bit about what this means. Before we get to the second point, this ledger of life, this need to gain things, this need to prove ourselves, this need to track our incomes and our expenses, our gains and our losses, where does that come from and what do we do with that? Why can't we avoid that? Why can't we ignore that? And the Bible tells us because we were created in this way to know God. And we're trying, to know, we're trying to know other things and give our lives meaning and purpose. There's a play that was written in 1965 by a guy named Arthur Miller. It's called After the Fall. And in this play, the main character, Quentin, is reflecting on his life. And I think what he says is really interesting. He says, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then as you get older, what a good lover you are. Then a good father. Finally, how wise, how powerful, how successful, whatever. He's basically saying all of life is one attempt after another to prove yourself in a new way. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption. And the presumption was this, that a person moves on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows that I would be justified or even condemned a verdict anyway. What he's saying is this, the way that his heart was wired to prove himself told him, there's someone I'm trying to prove myself to. And someday I'll get a verdict. Was I good enough? Was I bad enough? Bad, or was too bad? Naughty or nice? And then, he's not a believer, he's an atheist, so he says this. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained 
was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless, pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. But the Bible tells us that the bench is not empty, <laughs> that there is a righteous judge, that there is a God, and that there is a standard that he's called us to live towards. And that brings us to our second point, which is the courtroom of heaven. We come to the courtroom of heaven in God's eyes, hoping that we measure up. And we show up with the ledger of life in our hands, hoping that our gain outweighs our loss, that our good outweighs our bad. But Paul says in this passage, there's a problem with thinking that way. And he uses the word righteousness. And righteousness can be understood as right standing, to be accepted, to be approved, and to have access. Righteousness, in a courtroom setting, to be righteous is to be acquitted. If you are charged with a crime and you are acquitted of the crime, you are righteous, or you are in right standing in the eyes of the judge and in the eyes of the law. And Paul uses this term righteousness to talk about this idea that there's a courtroom of heaven. And he describes the righteousness that was found in him, my righteousness. And Paul's righteousness was accomplished by himself, and it depended upon himself, and it was thanks to himself. And even many Christians live this way. They think if I'm good enough, if I keep the rules, if I show up at church enough, if I give a little bit, if I serve a little bit, if I don't say this, if I don't go there, if I don't watch this, if I just improve myself and become a better person of myself, then it's accomplished by you. It depends on you and it's thanks to you. And you're trying to get into the courtroom of heaven and you're trying to be righteous based on your own performance. But Paul says there's another way. And this is good news for you and me this morning. He says in verse nine, being found in Jesus not having a righteousness, an acquittal, a right standing, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or keeping the law. So Paul is saying, I could not make myself righteous in the courtroom of heaven by my own law keeping. If anyone could have, Paul's saying, it should have been me. I kept all the rules. But keeping the rules doesn't make you righteous in God's eyes. So what does he say? What's the other option? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or another way of reading this is the righteousness from God that depends on the faithfulness of Jesus. So we have this righteousness of our own, but then we have Jesus' righteousness, which is accomplished by Jesus. It depends on Jesus, and it's thanks to Jesus. So let me just show you the difference between these two. If it's accomplished by me, then I achieve it. If it's accomplished by Jesus, then I receive it. If it depends on me, then I spend my whole life trying to be a better version of myself. But if it depends on Jesus, I've spent my whole life trying to trust in him more and more. If it's thanks to me, then I swing between moments of pride when I get it right and moments of despair when I don't get it right. But if it's thanks to Jesus, then my whole life is gratitude and worship. This is so important for us to understand that in the courtroom of heaven, the only way that you and I can come before with a ledger of life that makes us righteous is if it's all accomplished by Jesus, which means Jesus is our gain. We consider all else loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. How do we know we're right in the courtroom of heaven? Well, verse three, Paul says it. He says, we are the circumcision, which means we are those who belong to God, true Israel, so to speak. We are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God, number one, glory in Christ Jesus, number two, and put no confidence in the flesh. To worship by the spirit of God, if you've been in church a long time and you hear the word worship, you immediately probably are thinking about singing. 
Singing is part of worship, but it's not all of worship. Worship is all of life, whether you're working, playing, interacting. So what Paul is saying here is those who belong to Jesus, they live by the Spirit of God. And then this last one, they put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh is anything other than Jesus. So we don't build our confidence on our righteousness, on our performance, on our pedigree. We have no confidence in the flesh. But this middle phrase is our third point, to glory in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to glory in Christ Jesus? And I want to talk to you as we close about the surpassing worth of Christ. Pastor Antonia, you can join me. You know, all the time we're making decisions based on the word worth. Is that person worth my time? Is that piece of cake worth the calories? <laughs> Is this TV show worth binging? Is that career worth pursuing? Last night I was with some guys in the church at the Carrier Dome watching Syracuse play. And when it was 31 to 3, the other guys, we began to look at each other, and basically this is what we were asking each other. Is it worth it to stay? <laughs> and we, along with half the dome, made the same decision. It is no longer worth it to stay. Sleep was worth more than watching them continue to get beat the way that they were getting beat. You've never made a decision in your, listen, you've never made a decision in your entire life that wasn't built on worth. And Paul has this amazing phrase, and I don't want us to miss it in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. Your pedigree is loss. Your performance is loss. The best things about you in the light of Jesus are loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This word rubbish in the Greek, it's skybalon, and it refers to useless or undesirable material subject that needs to be disposed of. The King James has the best translation of this word. The King James says it's dung, dung. It's animal feces. It's garbage. It's waste. Paul is not saying, now let me clarify. Paul is not saying your family is waste. Your career is dung. Your talents and your gifts are useless. What he's saying is this. If you see Christ, the surpassing worth of Christ, everything else by comparison seems disposable. You can lose it all, but you can't lose Christ. Because it's not your hold on Christ that secures you. It's his hold on you. And this is the hope that Paul gives us, the surpassing worth of Christ. And my question to you this morning, whether it's your first time thinking about this or whether you've thought about this your entire life, is has your heart been captured by the surpassing worth of Christ? Because every heart is captured by the surpassing worth of something. For some people, it's the surpassing worth of power, the surpassing worth of control, the surpassing worth of pleasure, the surpassing worth of being right, of being respected. But Paul says, once you've seen Christ, because none of those things, power, control, respect, career, wealth, pleasure, none of them gave their life on a cross for you. And when Paul was headed on Damascus Road to kill more Christians, Jesus said, enough. And he interrupted Paul's life. And he literally knocked Paul off his horse. And he revealed himself to Paul as the crucified Savior. And he said to Paul, Paul, why are you fighting against me? Why are you persecuting me? Look at me. I gave my life for you. I'm of surpassing worth to you. 
And Paul's life was radically changed in that moment. And you might say, I don't need that because I'm not persecuting or killing Christians. But the Bible says that while you and I were enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. Have you seen the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ? He goes on to say, that I may know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, even becoming like Jesus in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, because of the surpassing worth of Christ, I can suffer with joy, because if you've seen the surpassing worth of Christ, then in your suffering, you become like Christ, but in, in your death, you will be with Christ. The surpassing worth of Christ. And if all death can do is bring you face to face with the most beautiful, valuable worth of your life, then even death has no power over you. It's lost its sting. I don't know how much longer after Paul wrote these words he was killed for his faith, but it wasn't much longer. History tells us that Paul was beheaded by the Roman Empire because of his teaching and preaching of Jesus Christ. And when Paul died and walked into heaven. You know how I think one of the first people there might have been to greet him, hug him, applaud him, and welcome him was? Stephen. Stephen. The man that he had executed applauded him. All the martyrs that perished under Paul's leadership when he was Saul, they were probably right there cheering and celebrating Paul. You're with us, you're home, why? Because of the surpassing worth of Christ. Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in Christ we have one who can take even the worst of our lives and build something beautiful. And Paul knew it and he said, everything else that I used to count as gain, I now count it as loss. If you're a Christian this morning, that should be your testimony. All the things I used to brag about and put my hope in and boast in, now they're lost in comparison to knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.